so we're about to hear from Mr. Dave McGowan. He's born and bred in South London, and he hosts a really brilliant literary night called In Your Ear, which is a, a popular London literary event. Usually happens uh, in Fitzrovia. Is that still where it is? The next one's coming up soon, so I can give you a plug for that. He is the author of Putting It Away, a series of short stories featured on the Birkbeck Writers' Hub, and has a great ear for the different sounds of London. So I present to you Mr. Dave McGowan. Uh, thank you, Zelda. Uh, thanks for having us back. Hello, everyone. Uh, I write these pieces called uh, Earwigging. And uh, they're basically overheard conversations, but I like to build the picture up, as it were. So, I'll skip through a few. I'm with my mate Ryan. We're sitting in a pub in Robin Hood's Bay in North Yorkshire. Half the people in the pub look almost identical. They've got extra small heads supported by long, thin necks, tiny mouths, eyes that are too close together, and beaks for noses. Me and Ryan are on Mexican gold-kept mushrooms, preparing, preparing, ourselves to in, preparing to introduce ourselves to a table full of ladies. There are two couples discussing their teenage years on the next table. One of the women says, I lost my virginity to a bloke who worked in a maggot farm. You could never quite get the smell off of him. Oh, by the way, this uh, features badly executed regional accents. <laughs> in the old white heart in Hull Old Town, a middle-aged workman is leaning against the bar talking to the staff about gourmet burgers. He says, I was at a non-league football match once and the bird behind the counter were heating up pre-cooked burgers with an iron. At Port Elliot, our band was camped next to one of them families that finds nothing wrong with bringing a screaming infant to a festival when it gets all uppity the moment you turn up with a bunch of drunken, drugged-up mates at four in the morning. Anyway, what we heard from their tent was, India, put that back. That's Daddy's Yakult. <laughs> in a Brixton pub, one Geordie barmaid says to the other Geordie barmaid, I hate that new guy so much that when he said he liked my new jacket, I considered throwing it in the bin. <laughs> I'm in a large, deserted Victorian pub on Hessel Road in Hull. The landlord is sitting there with his caged African grey parrot his gay denial and a fish dish with the largest portion of tinned potatoes anyone has ever seen. He says things like, Condon Frank, he was such a lovely guy. He says, I've got prostate cancer, so I do worry about leaving Percy. African greys, they live into their 60s, you see. And he says, make sure you shut the door properly on the way out, there's rats running around here. I go to the bog before I leave and the gust from the hand dryer smells of powdered egg. A toothy gay guy is talking to his moustachioed companion on the table behind me in a Portuguese gaff on Stockwell Road. 
I stopped chewing my grilled sardines to hear him say, non-alcoholic lager is like going down on your cousin. It tastes the same, but it just ain't right. <laughs> I'm grabbing a disco nap on a friend's kitchen sofa. I doze off listening to my mate's flatmate's girlfriend tell my mate's sister. My nan was the closest person to me, more than my mum or dad. When she died, I missed her so much. I'm not lying to you. She came back to me as a black and white cat. I knew it was her as soon as she walked into the room. In a vegan cafe in Wood Green, I hear a woman behind me say to her fellow diner, we were a church-going family. To be honest, my dad was a cunt. <laughs> Outside a pub in Covent Garden, the governor is on the phone to his superior. Mate, thinking about it, do not send her here for training. You know she's hot, you know Paul and me are swingers, and we'll try to fuck her. Actually, on reflection, please do send her here. This is an old anecdote, actually, I pretended I overheard it. Uh, at the railway in Tulls Hill, the barman says to a regular, do you remember that time Simon's legs turned blue so he got a cab to the hospital, sat in A&E for four hours, and when he got to see the nurse, she said, excuse me, mate, are those new jeans? On the tube heading towards Turnpike Lane, a young couple are ribbing each other on the seats next to me. The lad says, don't take the piss out of me for not knowing about tennis. You thought Sinn Féin was a person. A crackhead stands with arms raised in the doorway of Angel's Costumes on um, Shaftesbury Avenue in the middle of Theatreland and declares, this is my stage. Wandering around Dulwich Picture Gallery, a woman says to her companion, you've no idea, darling. When I was in the ballet, I got punched in the face for bleeding through my point shoes. I'm having lunch with friends at a beach cafe in Ibiza next to a couple of loud orange Essex folks. One pipes up, he's, ship he's shoplifted so much cheese he's become lactose intolerant. <laughs> in a mini market in Homerton, a middle-aged suit is lecturing an office junior as they buy some cans. Now, if you had a flat, you'd be more eligible and you could have a wife just like me. And the kid replies, I don't want a wife just like you. <laughs> a couple of military-looking lads are queuing for a kebab at the Mangal in Camberwell. One says, once when I was doing catering, I accidentally served up a plate of ham sandwiches to a bunch of Arab arm dealers. They went mental. I don't know what their fucking problem was. They were all surrounded by whores and all that. In a cafe in Penzance, two middle-aged women in, a high street, in high street attire are talking over a cup of tea in a neighbouring table, on a neighbouring table. The blousier of the two looks at our Baron's instrument cases and says, ooh, are you lot, sorry, I'll do the accent, ooh, are you lot in a band? So, I've always wanted to sing, it's always been my ambition to be able to sing Swan Lake. Three primly dressed American guys step out of the Novello Theatre onto dreary old Aldwych, having just seen Mamma Mia, the musical. 
one says, how the hell is this supposed to be a London experience? And, and thank you. Thank you, Dave. Great insight into it. Well, actually, he really gets around, doesn't he? Um, so our next writer, Hamja Asan, is a South London-based writer who's just published his debut book, Shy Radicals, Anti-Systemic Politics of the Militant Introvert. It's a speculative fiction book based on an imaginary political party. He's presented at Forest Fringe Festival, Somerset House, Tate Modern Off-Print, and runs DIY Cultures Festival since 2013. May I present the activist, Hamja Asan. So, as well as being a writer, I'm also the leader of a anti-imperialist, revolutionary, separatist political party like the Black Panthers, but for shy people. And uh, I'm struggling to overthrow extrovert supremacy and, and establish an independent homeland of Aspergistan. <laughs> so I'll start by reading the opening chapter, which is uh, the draft, uh, draft constitution for the Shy People's Republic of Aspergistan. Um, it's, mo it's mostly based on um, North Korea. Shy People's Republic of Asbergistan. We, the peoples of Asbergistan, embody the Shy People's Republic of Asbergistan, the sanctuary, beacon, and homeland of oppressed, shy, introvert, and autistic spectrum peoples, and understand our nation's crowning principles will serve as a bulwark against the hegemony of the extrovert world order, marking a decisive step towards a fraternal collaboration and coexistence of all shy peoples in autonomous worldwide union. Acknowledge that successive generations of our people have suffered rejection, bullying, humiliation, belittlement, pathologization, persecution, subjugation, exploitation, erasure, exclusion, alienation, discrimination and disadvantage at the hands of the global system of extrovert supremacy, which has dispossessed and deprived us of our right to introspective life self-esteem, equality, and peace. Demand the reversal of the operations of extrovert exclusive representation in Congress and debate chamber parliaments. Acknowledge the system's failure to listen to and represent its subjects and citizens. We take Lao Tzu's dictum, the quieter you, the quieter you become, the more you are able to hear. So I'm not a sellout by being on the stage, by the way. As a foundation principle of our democratic institutions, Cherish the richness of inner life, silence, contemplation, reflective solitude, intimate company, investigative depths, peer-reviewed truth, which forms a basis and legitimacy of the state and government to determine our destiny. And I'll just read some extracts from the Constitution. So, Article 24. The national anthem is the sound of a seashell, which may be accessed on a 24-hour basis by citizens by holding the seashell to the ear. Non-citizens outside the current territory of Asbergistan may also access the anthem in this manner. And then we have a chapter on culture. Um, Article 30, abolition of private views 
opening ceremonies, launch parties, and all other suffocating crowd-gathering forms of celebration of new cultural products, film seasons, and exhibitions, the state encourages the purging of the socialite class. Article, th Article 31. The state shall safeguard and preserve all areas of solitary dwelling under public ownership from outside interference. Caves, forests, mountains, rivers, and woods. The state guarantees the right to clear and empty space in all spheres of life. Article 32. The state shall guarantee 24-hour access to all public libraries, museums, laboratories, bookshops, tea and coffee houses, archives and cathedrals within its sovereign territory. Article 33. The night culture of the state shall honor the sacred contemplative nature of the dark as a journey into the soul, a time of rest and exploration. Abolition of trendy club culture and its colonization of time space will be guaranteed by the will of the herd. Article 34, the state guarantees 24-hour access to all objects of artistic, historical, and cultural value. Article 35, Aspergistan shall adopt a revolutionary system for the measurement of time, developing a new calendar based on Easter lunar models. This will abolish the concepts of the weekend, AM and PM. <laughs> Article 36, Aspergistan shall adopt its internal units of measurement distance to ensure the safeguarding of empty space. Article 37, Aspergistan shall adopt its internal system of measuring noise uh, in, in full accordance with Sharia law, with inviolable introvert rights at its centre. Article 38, uh, April the 2nd is to be known as Worldwide Autism Day, designated by the United Nations General Assembly Resolution 62139. This will be the first week of national holidays. Article 39, abolition of strobe lighting, flashing lights, neon lighting, Advertise billboards from all public space, ensuring the clearest possible view of the constellations. Article 34. The biodiversity of flora and fauna shall be celebrated on the basis of whole ecosystems and the richness of the soil, rather than the privileging of flamboyant birds and animals and temporary blooming flower spans. Culls of flamboyant birds and animals and temporary blooming flower spans. Culls of flamboyant birds with Shiria Supreme Court rulings. The state shall also rescue and preserve introvert biodiversity, recognizing the historical genocidal cult of badgers, bats and deer in extrovert supremacist states. Article 41. Animals are not entertainment. Extrovert supremacist abuse of animals for the purpose of showmanship and narcissism is absolutely prohibited, whether in the form of circus acts, magic tricks, or cats on Facebook. So don't stop oppressing me. So this is um, this is the black power salute here, and uh, this is the shy power salute, a bit like a uh, cough. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to end with the uh, demand for reparations for shy, introvert, and autistic spectrum people. Introverts don't move on. In solidarity with all global justice campaigns for historical recognition from that of Columbus's invasion of America in 1492, to the return of the pulp, plundered Elgin marbles and treasures of the Benin Kingdom from museum display cases, the ongoing Nakba and onward, the global shy radicals movement issues a universal resolution from the bedroom with our faces buried in our pillows to say to the world at large, don't move on. Take the long walk of Hillsborough 
the death of 96 people at a football game, the largest police cover-up in European state history in full compliance with an extrovert supremacist media system with government by distraction. Only after 27 years of struggles did the families achieve recognition of the truth and justice in court. The former Prime Minister David Cameron echoing the courage of power said in a way demeaning to all introspective people that the longing for truth was like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that wasn't there. Was it not to the benefit of the world that such people's struggle did not move on? From that moment of truth, all other retrospective justice campaigns can take inspiration. What festering darkness remains over those years of the pure blackness of truth? To not move on is the true stuff of heroism. Let us forever brood in the dark room then, close the curtains, fester onwards. Every broken soul demands justice, reconciliation, hope, parity, and fairness. Don't move on. Moving on is a representative of the continuation of life. Moving on as the ultimate life ethic of the future is a receiving morality of shallow extrovert normative entertainment industry. Sitcoms, friends, as in the sitcom friends, Relationship dramas, K-pop songs, cheap thrills, advertising fix-it slogans, roller coaster rides, and so on. Think these forms of entertainment entertainment do not allow the same pace and open space as the Igmar Bergman film or the latest Iranian cinematic masterpiece. Reflection, maturation, distillation, marination. There is no fast food justice system. To let go is to comply with the corporate godhead, laying off workers, government with accountability. Government, by Sharia law, will not permit this. Don't let go. One, final financial compensation for the billions made through globalizing our pain. The extrovert world order owes us. This compensation will be drawn from the pockets of those who have plundered our resources, disturbed our peace, and dispossessed us. The extrovert order was erected on the backs of our people. Their entertainment industry made its millions through globalizing our ridicule, our exported film and TV industry of media formats designed us to keep us in our place. Teen drama movies that framed us in a perpetual underclass and figures of ridicule. It was said Labour leader Ed Miliband lost the 2015 general election due to his resemblance to a nerd. It was said that Donald Trump won the 2016 election due to being the high school jock corridor bully. Just think, your system affects us at the highest level of power. The extrovert normative mass media condemn loners to a fate of instigators, deranged acts of terror, and high school mass suitings. We suffered the teen movie onto death. The entire production process was built as a system of uneven development. It was only fair that the obscene inequalities of star salaries be accumulated in the world of glossy images should be redistributed. This includes loss of earnings, retrospectively stars of the extrovert supremacist economy from the socialite classes, from the fashion world to musicians, and behind the scenes a team of administrators and invisible production underclasses engaged in alienated labor. No more reality TV to keep up their self-appointed icons. Our reality will be fully recognized. The glittery, gl glossy, and the glamorous, the extrovert class possesses no right to rule. The extrovert class has colonized our living rooms with broadsheet and media parading their lifestyles divestment and sanctions of all celebrity capital. And, and then point two of the uh, reparations is, a full and formal apology means renunciation of false affection and niceness. The world will not sing in perfect harmony. Nothing will be solved by extrovert people simply being all right. How are you? How was your weekend? And other small talk microaggressions will not be registered as real concerns anymore until restitution. A blacklist of public spaces where service staff have told us and our people to cheer up 
will be drawn up in cooperation with the enemy. Those cafes where we wished only to sit alone with black coffee and the company of a book. What else do you imagine a cafe is for? To establish profit and economic growth? We will seize every buck from every glossy cafe, and with that, every chain bar and chain pub. We will return cafes to their original asocial social function for our people. Do not dare impose your feel-good ideology on us ever again. Thank you. to arrest him, but he's bigger than me. Uh, we've got two writers left. I know, the cavalcade of literature is coming to an end. Our next writer is quite self-deprecating. He says of himself, Jack Blackburn is a performance poet and portrait painter who lives in South London. He's never done much with his life other than fuck around. Actually, he's written a really good book called Citus in Versus, which you'll be reading from tonight, so I hope you enjoy it. Hey there, this is uh, the second time our hero meets his lifelong mentor. Anyway, that night, I must have been 13, and I was hanging out at the, at the gash with the WA on top of the garage roofs. The gash was so cold because of the strange black dried-up dike that cut it in half like a swoosh of spray paint or a giant scorch mark. The WA were the clumsily named Westgate Alliance. We were either a loose association of eager, well-meaning local lads trying our best to improve our drab reality by following the tenets of a b-boy lifestyle, that is, exploring creativity through the four pillars of hip-hop, or we were a bunch of annoying numpty vandals who stuffed their tracky bottoms into their white socks before riding around on BMXs, annoying every, everyone and terrorising some. Loud, nasty, dope-smoking, thieving, burglarising dickheads with an unpleasant habit of pissing everywhere. It depended on who you talked to. The truth was probably somewhere in the middle. Well, maybe just a little bit closer to the latter description. Actually, we were more like one branch of the WA juniors. Any outsider would, look, would have looked on the gash and seen a bunch of indistinct kids, all wearing the same airwear, tracksuit, hoodie, baseball cap combo, and imagined we were a swarm, all part of some hive mind. From the inside, it was more like a large imperial court, complex hierarchies and micro-generations with complicated familial ties and subtle alliances interacted with variant levels of competition and cooperation. The actual WA proper hardly came to where we hung at all. They were old enough to drink and do dope deals in the Eagle, which squatted on the corner of the gash like a lone fort in Comanche country. The garage roofs had just been freed up for us by, as a hangout by some older lads who graduated to better things. The garages themselves were long abandoned, doorless, and in bad weather, we sheltered inside of them on stinking fly-tipped sofas, sometimes burning mattresses and other crap for warmth. Me and my mates were fast outgrowing the skewed impression that we'd been doing for years of a gang of American kids from a Saturday afternoon Goonies-type film. Buzzer was the fat kid, only sullen and quiet, nearly to the point of moot, with one permanent expression, startled. Stilly and Riggy were both hyperactive motor-mouth clowns, a loony double act, 
Me and my best mate, Rushi, who I'd known since I was five, similarly shared the role of the brainy geek. But like I say, teenage involved nefarious activities that were making those TV glean roles more and more of an uneasy fit. Also, we never went anywhere without Slacko, who I never really liked, an annoying little fuckwit who was constantly dragged around by a nasty Rottweiler called Zoltan that he blatantly couldn't control. I always resented the fact that we tolerated Slacko, a proper moron. I was sure it was only because his big brother, Madder, was de facto WA leader, and he had another three older brothers and different WA subsects. We might have been a bunch of low expectation having, underachieving, maladjusted delinquents, but I always believed that our little group had some kind of nous or creative urge or something that made us cool. To me, Slacko was a bag of blood. His only seeming ambition was to be the biggest numpty on the planet. I was the only one with a problem, though. Whenever I suggested ditching him, not calling for him, or avoiding him, everyone else would say stuff like, don't be so fucking tight, Slacko's a mate, or Slacko's WA, he's one of us. Leave Slacko alone, he's all right. Why have you got a problem with Slacko? That night on the roofs, it was the six of us, plus Ulla, an older lad who would sometimes hang out with our little crew. I think because he thought we deserved a bit of neutering. Mostly, he tutored Riggy in BMX freestyling, obviously feeling that he showed promise. The roofs were an excellent vantage point from which to watch blue flashing lights chase WA on twocked motorbikes. We were sniffing gas and drinking stolen cider, getting fucked up, looking at the stars and the obese full moon that was out that night, talking shit and rapping in that white northern chav idiom loved so much. Still, he was sick. I'll fuck you up sideways. That's my ways. I'll kick you in the nuts. Then you'll shut the fuck up. I'm the big dog. You're the fucking pup at the back of the bus. At some point, a young lad called Pogo appeared. He said, I've got a wench with me. I want to bring her up. Ulla shook his head. You're too young to come up here. And no lasses on the roof. That's a rule. Pogo's whole body rippled out a shrug. Well, I'll go somewhere else with the 40 B&H I just swiped from the jug and bottle. He held up a plastic bag. And these six cans of Stella. Ulla, without mission and repeat, replied, well, you can bring up the f who the fuck you like then, can't you? After a bit of pulling and... Put your foot on that bit. There she was in a school uniform, hair black like shellac, now long and fanned out across the back of her red school jumper. She caught me staring at her whilst I took a swig on a can, but didn't seem bothered. If she thought it was going to be fun on the garage roofs, she didn't show it. And after she'd been given a sniff and some Stella, she sat down and we all got back to getting monged. Pogo told me, your Phil helped me nick all this. Our Phil's out thieving these days, is he? Where is he now? Why didn't he come up? He's too shy, or he thinks you wouldn't let him. There he is. I saw a small figure moving in the shadows on a rope swing under some trees. I thought about shouting to him to come up, but decided to leave him where he was. Rushy said, when I've learned how to drive, the first thing I'm going to do, right, I swear down, is nick a fucking car and drive off. I mean, just get the fuck out of here. Still, he lifted his can of Stella high. Fuck that. Me and Riggy, right, what we're going to do is fucking hijack a plane and say, fly us to... Flies to fucking, as he often did, Riggy finished the sentence for him. Just get us the fuck out of Delland, will ya? Over the laughter, Slacko shouted in his annoying, whiny voice. What's wrong with Delland? Ulla was smoking a joint. He held it in front of him in a pose, reminiscent of a phlegmatic philosopher. I'm building a rocket in my granddad's shed. A big one. I'm gonna take off. He lifted the joint higher. 
leave the Earth's atmosphere or whatever and fucking go so far up, far fucking away, that this planet, no, fuck it, this sun that we've got won't be visible as a star. That's my plan. We all made appreciative grunts. Rushy rolled his eyes at me in a gesture he often used, meaning these fucking lads. Sometimes we could get pretty fucked up on the garage roofs, so mashed in fact that getting back down could be dangerous. I didn't notice her come over, but at some point realized that Tracy was sat right next to me, talking in a whisper, obviously high, holding the finger up towards me as if trying to push a really stiff button. Your robotics. She was right. I'd been spraying fat robots all over the Westgate for about two years. Me and Rushi had both been on it, but he had gotten less and less interested, leaving me to go solo. Robotics was my tag. She smiled, seemingly loving it now up on the roofs with the lads. I was horizontal by this point and could see the swollen moon eavesdropping just above her head. I'm UFO. She said it like UFO. I knew what she meant straight away. I'd seen these sick yellow and purple flying saucers appearing all over the Westgate, finessed with just two or three strokes of a spray can. Each one was slightly different, all of them fucking brilliant. I've been trying to find out who did them, but nobody had known. Fucking hell, that's fucking sick. I nodded my head in appreciation. I'd never imagined that those UFOs had been painted by someone as young as me. She must have seen me at it, but I'd not noticed her. and thought I was the only graffiti prodigy out there. Also, I'd never imagined that it was a girl out there tagging them up. We didn't get into a big conversation or even a little chit-chat. We both just sat there taking each other in. It was a good buzz, high as the Mir space station, the white moon reflected in her silver eyes, grinning, thinking about all the places our two tags were bouncing off each other. This time, I did have some definite desire for her. I actually reached out to touch her leg. It was glowing in such a way that I imagined it was the source of some electricity and wondered if I would get a shock, but just then, Pogo shouted, Tracy, come on, let's Nash. Now, I've got to go and meet my brother. Tracy, you coming or what? She sighed, then slowly traipsed after him, like a reluctant gangster's mole. Maybe it was wishful thinking, but I didn't get the vibration that they were boyfriend-girlfriend, more like he was just showing around all the amazing nightlife the Westgate had to offer. After she left, I felt good, sure that the next time we'd meet, I'd get talking to her. I was looking forward to having a friend who was a girl, a girl who was doing graph. I was sure that we'd link up and go bombing together. It was an exciting development in my life. But it didn't happen like that. Just a couple of days later, her mum moved her off the Westgate and her sister over to some flat on the other side of town. No new UFOs appeared on the Westgate and I didn't even see her for another three years, except sometimes riding past, high up on a horse. Thank you so much, Jack Blackburn. So, our very last, but definitely not least, author is Joshua Winning. And I'm very intrigued by this book, actually. He's a, a film journalist who writes for Total Film, SFX, Gay Times, and Radio Times. But he's also been on set with Kermit the Frog, devoured breakfast with zombies on The Walking Dead, and sat on the Iron Throne while visiting the Game of Thrones set in Dublin. I suspect that one's a bit of a joke. Uh, Joshua's dark fantasy series, The Sentinel Trilogy, is published by Peridot Press. But his new book, Killing Rumor, 
is, would you describe it as dark sci-fi? It's published by Unbound. Uh, and you can find out more about his work on joshuawinning.com. May I present Josh Winning. Hello. We've almost made it. We're almost at the end. Um, so, yes, yeah, so my new book. Up it a bit. I'm going to be. Is that? Yeah? Cool. So, my new book is called Killing Rumor. I may have thrown one of these at you earlier. I'm very sorry. Uh, it's a thriller. It's about a, a weird, kind of loner, 19 year old girl in London. Uh, she's a shadow for a detective agency. Uh, and the book is uh, being crowdfunded on Unbound. Uh, so by pre-ordering a copy, you can actually get the book published. Uh, and at this point in the story, uh, Rumour has been kidnapped. It's right at the start of the story. She's calling the guy who's kidnapped her nicotine man because he stinks of cigarettes. Uh, and she's been taken to a, a remote warehouse somewhere outside London. I don't look like Rumour. Just imagine me with kind of black hair. And, uh, glass crunches under my boots. If I look down, I just about glimpse the grimy warehouse floor under the bag over my head. I hear rain again, the tinkling of chains, and something else, scratchy music, the ghostly trill of a trumpet. A hot stench floods my nostrils. I almost heave into the bag. It smells like rotting meat. It's worse than a morgue in here, I mutter. Something digs into my back, the barrel of a gun. I keep walking. I swear I can taste whatever's curdling the warehouse air. I'm actually grateful for the bag. It must be masking at least a little of the stench. As I'm pushed on, the music grows louder. A door opens and I'm shoved forward, presumably into another room, though it's hard to tell. Something solid knocks the back of my knees and I land in what must be a chair. Pinching hands bind my feet to the chair legs. I clasp my tied hands together on my lap, rubbing my knuckles, reminding myself to breathe. Feet scuff away and a door shuts. It's just me and the crackling record. I assume I'm alone. Reading music warbles louder than ever, and a smoky voice croons about how some guy did her wrong, how he was bad, 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 the usual. My head jerks to the side. There's another sound, soft breathing. Somebody's nearby. So here she is, the living rumor. She hisses my name. There's a hint of an accent in her voice, but I can't tell where from. How does she know my name? The bag's torn away. My eyes are fuzzy after darkness, and I think the room, I blink the room gradually into focus. Slatted blinds filter in a neon haze. Something brushes my cheek. The room's filled with strange ornaments, and little shadows flutter everywhere. Butterflies. They cling to spider plants and caress the faces of Chinese dragons. I thought we were in a warehouse, but this could be a seedy boudoir. There's even a chandelier. Across the room, a figure lounges on a sofa. In the gauzy light, she's little more than a shapely outline as she leans into embroidered pillows, dark hair tumbling, smoke curling up from a cigarette. I can't help staring. When a man loses something, he loses more than the object that is taken from him. Don't you agree? The outline on the sofa speaks. He also loses a part of himself. I twist in the chair, but the ropes chew my ankles. I don't know what you're talking about. The figure sits up. Yellow light breaks over a disarmingly pretty face. She wears a patterned kimono that forms a V over a muscular chest, and you realize it's not a woman at all. The man's eyelids are painted pink. 
He puts a fresh cigarette to his lips. The flicker of orange from the lighter briefly illuminates his face, and I see one of his eyes is milky white. No matter what a man loses when something is taken from him, the thief always comes off worse in the end. His, ra his voice rasps like torn paper. Jealousy is a dark dog's bark which attracts thieves. And I thought you thought you could take from me without consequence. Take? I haven't taken anything from you. Silence. Something on his hand catches the light, a silver ring. I have little time for thieves and even less time for liars. Thief, liar, I've been both, but I've never seen this man before. Whatever he thinks I've done, he's mistaken. He rises from the sofa and pads slowly toward me, muscle rippling, skin gleaming. Tell me where it is. He drags on the cigarette. Orange embers simmer in his eyes, and the smoky one shifts as if it sent something mystical, something invisible to normal sight. I don't know what you're talking about, I say. I haven't taken anything from you. He bares his teeth and there's a wink of gold. She lies with her mother's tongue. My stomach boils. He knew my mother. I've forgotten about the rotting stench filling the warehouse, the butterflies, the scratchy music. Everything around him fades, and it's just me and the man in the kimono. I chew my tongue, preventing the questions from erupting in a stinky spew. He stubs the cigarette out in an ornate ashtray. You will tell me, he whispers, you will tell me where the crook spear is. He's so close I smell his perfume. Cinnamon and something bitter. I'm certain I've never seen him before. I'd remember a face like that. I've shadowed plenty of people for Julian, followed them into alleys and grimy bars, but never this man. He's not like the others. They're petty criminals. This guy would eat them for brunch. I've never heard of any crookspear, I say. Lies! I will not stand for them. He's trembling now, snarling, his pink fingernails contorted into claws. You've got the wrong person, I say, desperation edging into my voice, because the look he's giving me is like needles and white fire. It makes me flush hot and cold, and still the record singer croons about her rotten lover, her bad man. You'll never leave this place alive. Again the accent, soft but implacable. The crookspear, where is it? I've never heard of it. My shoulders ache, and I realize they're up by my ears. Your mother would be proud. The lie doesn't even sound like a lie. What's she got to do with this? He strokes my cheek. In time, you will tell me where it is in time. He looks past me. Take her to the pit. Nicotine man has been standing behind me the whole time. He tugs my restraints, and I kick my legs free. Before he can stop me, I'm on my feet, knotting my bound hands together and pounding them into his gut. He makes an oof sound, but grabs my hair and yanks. As my eyes stream, I, flash in his, I, I thrash in his grip, but no matter hard, how hard I resist, I can't stop him dragging me out of the boudoir and back into the warehouse. Angry yells echo all around me, taunting me in waves, and I'm only half aware they're mine. I'm hauled into a dirty grey square of a room. The smell's so awful, bile bubbles up from the pit of my stomach. I see a rusted grate in the floor, just as it's heaved up by a man in a black suit and a mask that covers his eyes. You've got to be kidding me, I begin. But then I notice Nicotine, Ma Nicotine Man's drawn a blade from his belt. His brows knit together and he's enjoying this, snatching my hands and running the blade through my restraints. My hands snap free, 
but the nicotine man tips me through the hole in the floor and I'm falling, falling, then crunch. Cement breaks my fall. Angry fireworks fizz in my brain, but as I spit dust and grunt into the floor, something worse distracts me. I try to stop panting, try not to breathe the stinking air at all, because now I know where the stench is coming from. I'm surrounded by dead bodies. And that's it. Thanks very much. If you want to read more, please do check out unbound.com. Thank you. Thank you very much, Josh. Very scary passage. So that's it. I'm going to kick you all out now. Hope you had a nice time, yes? Got a few people to say thank you to, because obviously I may be up here telling you who's coming on, but I am not the only person who's responsible for this. So I want to say thank you very much to Jerome, who's recording the whole thing as a podcast for us, as well as managing all the sound. So you can listen to any of the readings again if you go on the book jam site tomorrow. Uh, I want to say, say thank you very much to the Hootenanny, who have supported this event for five years. Thank you, Hootenanny. They keep it going. I want to say thank you very much to the three lovely booksellers who've been so charmingly taking your money, giving you some literary treats. And uh, that is Christian, Sheila, and Sharon. And thank you very much to Stuart for making all the chairs be in the right place and everything be organized, the banner up, taking lovely photos of our events. Our next event will be on the 4th of December, so put in your diaries now. We'll be back with some great writers, and thank you, audience, very much for coming and being so enthusiastic, attentive, and wonderful. Good night. Can we have a big thank you for Zelda, who organised this all pretty much by herself?